Hi, and welcome to Tuesday Topics. It's a pleasure to have as many of those folks who have actually joined us and who will be participants. This is your show, so we really appreciate your being there. This evening, we're going to look at three questions, and what we'll try to do is I will set out what I think are some of the parameters for each, and then we'll open it up so that those of you who are here can have an opportunity to talk with us about how you feel. So the first issue that we want to focus on tonight has to do with triaging. And I suppose it's fortunate that it's now looking like this is not going to be a major issue. But whether it is at this moment, I think it could be at another emergency. So it's probably worth our while to spend some time talking about exactly uh, what's involved here. So there are several state plans that have come out which said essentially this. When we get to the place where we don't have enough ventilators to go around, where we don't have enough hospital beds to go around, where emergency services are so overtaxed that we have to start making choices about who should live and who should die. How do we do that? Now, many states have said uh, that folks uh, will not be taken to the hospital, and this has been true in New York, uh, if they can't be immediately revived. So if you go to your house and you're having a heart attack, and you don't get revived in a short while, they're not even inviting you to go to the hospital. So that's one instance. But there are several states whose guidelines essentially say that folks who are intellectually disabled, uh, folks who are disabled, period, uh, score fewer points on the triage ladder than others do. Pregnant women, by the way, score extra points. Uh, younger people who are healthier, people who don't have uh, other conditions aside from uh, the COVID virus also uh, are, are, are given higher marks. But the bottom line is choices are being made that are essentially creating life and death situations where people who are disabled may have more of a chance of not surviving rather than other folks. So the question is, A, what do we think about that? And B, um, what do we think we can do about it? Mr. Rick, do we have a hand? Yes, we do, Paul. We have phone number ending in 9833. 9833. Hi, it's Alice. I think it sucks. Um, yeah. I, I think it, it sucks. It stinks. I don't think it's right. Um, and, and I can't help but wonder if it's not the younger folks that are in the medical profession that are making that decision. Um, and I would be one of those they would probably consider not worth reviving. And I don't like that because as far as I'm concerned, I'm not ready to die yet. I still have too much I want to do. And I'm not sure what the answer is because... We're such a small group. How are we ever going to have enough voice to say any different? 
Well, one of the good things, Alice, and, and, and we're going to recognize somebody else in a second, but one of the good things is, um, whereas it doesn't often happen, the, the Federal Office of Civil Rights has actually come out pretty clearly and said that what they're doing at the moment is just not okay and it's not acceptable. So I'm actually excited about that. It's one of the few uh, federal pronouncements during the pandemic that I'm jumping up and down over. Who do we have next, Mr. Rick? Okay, well, let's go to Chris Coulter. Chris? Chris. Well, I think that what is, is going on here is we're seeing uh, right now a cold, impersonal list of priorities that that's where we need to start out with. But if but what actually is probably going to happen and does indeed with a lot of medical people, medical uh, surgeries or, or in this case, uh, deaths from COVID-19 is that you've got, maybe you have a person with a disability who has, who is able to function more highly, uh, a little bit more highly and has a lot more chance to live who might um, have priority over somebody without a disability who maybe has some other reason why they aren't they are close to death i don't know i think there are mixtures of you know high and low priority or they 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 make these decisions in in different uh different ways than just you're blind you're dead you know (laughs) so chris let 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 me ask you a question Mm -hmm. you're you're a frontline medical person and and uh, mm-hmm. there aren't enough ventilators right what what kind of priority are you going to set somebody's got to die i'm thinking this through as we speak it's a good it's a good discussion and i'm not exactly sure yep. but gotcha. i you know i just i'm just not but i do i do think that there are are, um, there's what more about, than just the pure. What about somebody with advanced list. Alzheimer's? Would it be okay? Do you suppose to 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 put that person in in a kind of a do not resuscitate kind of situation? I don't think it would be okay, but but and I and I know that you wouldn't always have their families there to or an or an advanced directive from a from that they've made up. Um, so I suppose if if there wasn't if there wasn't time, yep. uh, I, I I think we would have to do some things that aren't okay. Yep. You know, and and we'd have to live with it. I I yep. guess I guess not that's, easy. It's not perfect. Not nope. <laughs> Thanks, Chris. Mm-hmm. Who's next, Mr. Rick? I just want to tell you that. Um, Disability Rights of Pennsylvania did put up a big stink when the they, the uh, Pennsylvania guidelines hit the New York Times. Somebody leaked them. And um, so the ARC and Pennsylvania Disability Rights started talking about this. And mysteriously, on Monday, Pennsylvania changed their guidelines. They did. Um, As a matter of fact, virtually all states have now changed their guidelines. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I guess it's it, one of the points that I wanted to make, Chris, and, and, and you might want to comment on this as well, is, is that uh, 
that that I think this has been an instance where people with disabilities and disability rights folks have actually made a difference. I mean, we have impacted the virus. Now, you know, look at that stuff that um, that got sent out Sunday on the on the leadership list, the, the letter to sign on to that started out as fat disabled people and just went all over. You know, when I signed on to it, there were 1300 signatures on there that were both organizations, individuals, medical professionals, et cetera, um, you know, saying, you know, we're people, too. Um, yes. And and then, you know, then it came down to the other thing that they sent out was that kit, your preparedness kit. You cannot go to the hospital or anywhere if you if, if you're not prepared to say what you're willing to die for, or live for and what you're willing to uh, who your who your representatives are and, and all those things. You have to be prepared. You have to be proactive. Yes. And. And, and if you don't have somebody to help you, too bad. Unfortunately, that's true. And I was teasing with my sister. I said, should I just be my assertive self when I go to the hospital and say, don't you dare not give me that mask? She goes, yeah, they'll, they'll leave the mask on the other table. You have to be really nice to them so they'll love you. I <laughs> the said, answer okay, is I'll yes. Practice, I'll practice being the little <laughs> old lady that they love. <laughs> Thanks, Chris. Sure. All right. Who's next? Uh, Lori. Lori. So I just wanted to say that um, in New York, they have somewhat relaxed the guidelines. Um, However, I don't know that everything's being conveyed to the frontline EMTs. So they still, a lot of places are still working on if they don't get a radial pulse on you, they are not transporting you to the hospital. Right. Uh, So. one of the interesting things that's happened in New York, and, and, and I actually admire this a lot. Um, when, when people who have advanced Alzheimer's, um, go into the hospital, um, their families often include a DNR. So, so don't, don't put me on a ventilator. I, you know, I'm fine. And, and I admire people who have the courage to do that. So, you, you know, as we, as we talk about the bad stuff, we should talk about the good stuff as well. Any other thoughts, Ms. Laurie? Uh, yeah, the only other thing I, I would like to say is that the importance of advanced directives really does exist, um, both for emergency medical technicians that are, you know, with you minutes after, um, and those documents should also follow you to the hospital. A lot of people don't realize that, um, and, you know, it is important to be able to have somebody that's able to advocate for you. I have a a very good friend who's a physician's assistant in the Bronx, and she said she's done more, um, you know, calling more codes in one shift than she has in eight months over the last several weeks. And, you know, it it really takes a toll on them as well um, because especially in situations like that, when you come in as a COVID-19 patient, nobody's with you because they're assuming you're contagious and that's for the safety of family members. So I think there's a lot of pieces of the puzzle and it, it, you know, it really does mean that we have to be proactive. The other thing is, is that other decisions like this are made all the time by hospital ethics boards. And that's where I think 
in non-emergency times, we can fall short because we don't realize those decisions about who does this organ go to or, you know, do we split this ventilator just so we can make two people survive? So one of the things that I think we can and should do is, is to recognize that we're probably not going to be able to have a huge impact now, but we need to be sure that disabled people and, and advocates for disabled people are actually represented on those ethics committees, because I think they're, they're typically not. That is true, yes. Thanks, Lori. You're welcome. Thank you. Mr. Rick. We've got phone number 0370-0370. I wanted to let you know that I totally agree with what the gal just said. Um, and I'm explaining it from the point of view that I just went through it. And that is the fact that I went because I was in quarantine for a possible COVID-19 uh, affliction, contamination, if you call it. And um, I was also having other issues that was drawing attention that was possibly aboard that, but possibly not. And because of that, I, I, the ambulance did go ahead and take me in and I was admitted. But I'm saying all that to say, I almost died from this. And my thing was what she was just talking about. Have those papers done ahead of time. Don't wait for that to actually happen to you. Now, did, did you have yours done ahead of time, Jenny? I did. Excellent. I had the medical I had the medical authority power of attorney um, activated with my son, and I had two other people in line in case for some reason something happened to him and he could no longer answer. Uh, my safety line had all the numbers that they needed to call if the ambulance was ever notified. Everybody got their call right on schedule, and they all knew that they had to stay alert if it was their turn to say something. So Good I job. You, I encourage you, be your own advocate. Have these things set up so that the hospital knows exactly what to do once you arrive, so that the ambulance knows what to do when they get to your house. Be your own advocate and set it up. Excellent. Thank you, Jenny. We appreciate it. Thank you. Mr. Mr. Rick. We've got 9833. Hi, it's Alice again. I got a quick question. Whenever I go to the hospital, like for surgery procedures, of course, the one thing they always ask is, do I have a living will? Do I have a DNR? And I've never done one because I want everything done. So I guess the question is, it really truly behooves you to still have one, but to say that in the living will? Yes. Um, and, and, and I would always... I, I would always have one with me and also have one somewhere else. My daughter has mine and I have a copy myself so that I can take to the hospital with me, but it's all, it's all signed and sealed. And I think that's the right way to do it. I don't think it's enough just to have one in the hospital, a relative or somebody else should have a copy of your, of, of your living will as well. All right. Thanks. Thanks, Alice. Okay. This is Connie from Sacramento. Um, my husband suffered with a terminal illness for about a year, and he just passed away in December. And we were strongly urged. I would like to just agree with the last two ladies. We were strongly urged to do an advanced health care directive before he had cancer surgery, just in case anything happened. Right. And he 
and he he wanted to die naturally. He didn't even want to die in the hospital. He wanted to die with no artificial means, you know, no feeding tube, no ventilator. So it's yep. it is important to have that done ahead of time. We were also strongly urged to do an estate plan and a, a trust. So mine, ours is in a big binder. <laughs> so I don't know how <laughs> I would take that to the hospital. But but Kaiser had his advanced health care directive in their computer system. We actually went to Kaiser and someone helped us um, fill it out. And I also had a copy because I had um, power of attorneys. So I would just like to strongly agree. It's it's very important to have this done ahead of time, especially when something like the COVID-19 crisis comes up. So thanks. So any thoughts, any thoughts Connie, about, uh, about how we should make choices about who should live and who should die? That is a tough call. You know, when you think about it, those healthcare workers are in a very, very difficult and exhausting position. I mean, it's what? like it's like how it was in World War II, right? Yeah, they I would to, hate to be in their situation. You're absolutely right, Connie. They basically had to make those kind of decisions as well. And basically, if I remember correctly, they decided, okay, if the soldier's going to die anyway, he's not going to have he's not going to have priority. We're going to work on people who have a chance to live. And I, I wouldn't want to be in that position. I think that's a really hard decision to make. Yep. Thank you, Ms. Connie. We appreciate it. Stay well in Sacramento. And Mr. Rick, I, I know Brian Charlson has been trying to get heard. Can you find him? Um, I did want to deal with this whole issue of why in the world have this kind of document on file in the first place. I know a number of people who are um, in my age group grew up watching MASH on television. And those doctors there had to each and every day decide with a limited number of doctors and a limited number of operating spaces and capacity, who was going to be seen first and who was going to be seen second with those resource problems. And there's always seemed to be the person who's going to be seen first, second, and third are those more most likely to survive only with intervention and uh, have a good chance of surviving with that intervention. So those two criteria that you have a high probability of surviving if treated and that you need to be treated uh, immediately in order for that to be possible. How right. somebody does that when you have something like COVID-19, that's a, that's a difficult one because it's not a, you're going to bleed out in 15 minutes. There's judgment calls all along. As I understand it, the people who, uh, the doctors who've described it, uh, on TV uh, that I've watched indicate that it's really the person simply is too exhausted to pull in another breath. Yep. They've been working so hard at it. So is that going to happen with your next breath or a day from now? And there's another person who could use that ventilator or you could use that ventilator. I, I'm more concerned about when they decide to take somebody off a ventilator. 
than whether or not they're going to put somebody on a ventilator in the first place. I think it's a cleaner, cleaner thing. But I am so happy that I don't have to make those decisions uh, for anybody. Uh, I admire those who can do it, but I also caution them that the decision has to be one on survivability, not one on quality of life. So do, do you not think, Brian, that, that quality of life is, is ever an issue? I mean, if a, uh, let's take the example we used earlier, a person who's got advanced Alzheimer's, would, 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 that, would, that, would that not be a person who you'd put at a different level? I have to tell you that probably this, the thing I fear the most in terms of, of a disability is that kind of a disability. Oh, me too. Alzheimer's and, I, and dementia, those, those right. two scare me silly. And yep. I've already made it very clear to my family that if I find myself in that situation, that they're not to make massive sacrifices of their lives in order to keep me around under those circumstances. Because I, yeah. I don't think I am me uh, at that point. Me too, Mr. Brian. I'm not sure, quite honestly, that seeing the word Alzheimer's on an admission form instantly says you do not have a decent quality oh, I, of life. I agree with that. I, you'd have to have more information than that. I, I agree, Brian. Thank yeah, you, sir. You, you bet. Um, Thanks. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take one more question on this issue, and then we're going to go on to the next one. Actually, Paul, that's everybody that wanted to speak on this issue. So. Very good. So on. let's talk about the second, the, the, the second issue. We know that schools have closed in virtually every state, and we know that students who are blind or have low vision uh, are being expected to do some schooling at home. We also know that a lot of the platforms that are being used by various school districts uh, are not, in fact, accessible. But perhaps more important, we know that there are some school districts where folks are essentially being told your primary responsibility is to deal with students who don't have a disability. And in this emergency, we don't have time to make special accommodations for folks who are blind or to be sure that our platform is accessible. We're trying to get the greatest good for the greatest number, and that's all we can do in this school district. So in some cases, we are perfectly prepared to, and in fact, there is, uh, there is language built into the CARES Act that says uh, states and school districts are allowed to uh, suspend uh, civil rights in terms of expectations of education for people with disabilities in this emergency. So the question is, A, what do we think about it? And B, more importantly, what should we be doing about it? Okay, Paul, we have someone. We've got Connie. I am a, I am a former teacher. And I would like to point out that each student has what is called an IEP, Individualized Education Plan. And that document is a legal document 
So if those students do not receive services that are indicated on that IEP, then the school district is out of compliance. So uh, what I'm wondering is, does that apply during this crisis? Uh, the, the, the CARES Act language says, says that, that it may not. Um, mm. and, and, and of course, that's, that's the main issue. The IEP is and what it's supposed to do, but unfortunately, um, at at the moment, it's not um, it's not happening um, nearly as appropriately as it should. Okay. The other thing I would like to say, I am now I now teach English language acquisition to adults, adult immigrants, and now I'm on the end where I have to learn how to teach remotely from home. So I've been learning, I've been trying to learn this Zoom platform, and I'm, I'm one of the over 60 crowd who, you know, this, this technology is, is a huge learning curve. <laughs> so, well, you're doing well, Miss Connie. Thank you for being here, well, and thanks for your thoughts. What I appreciate is that you had the password embedded in the URL because um, yep. our school district doesn't do that, and so it makes it more difficult to get in. So thank it you. Does. You're welcome. All right, Mr. Rick. We've got 9833. That's Alice again. Yeah, it is. I was going to say, in Georgia here, it, I guess it's an equal playing field right now because they've just totally ended school period um, in the last couple of weeks, which I think is to our advantage. But my thoughts would be, in those states where there are still blind schools, there ought to be a way... And we need to think about, or even, and it might put a big burden on them, but, but possibly through Hadley to get these kids what they need to get them through. Because I just think if, if with them saying, well, we can waive, you know, the kids with disabilities right now so we can keep our quote unquote seeing students, um, you know, up, up and going, it puts us at a further disadvantage, which we're already at anyway. So, I would hope and that what will happen, because we know there may be a second wave come when the weather gets cold again, that they figure out a way to find a way to do it remotely for those children um, with special needs, because it just puts us further behind, and that we know in the end doesn't help. But like I said, here in Georgia, they've ended even the um, remote learning right now, so I guess that's, that's good for all of us. Or bad for all of us. Well, that too. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Miss Alice. Mr. Rick. 3614. 3614. <clears throat> Hi, Paul. This is um, Patty Slobby, and I'm a retired vision teacher. And yes, you are. I, I agree with, with what um, Connie and Alice have stated, but as a vision teacher, I, I'm one of those over 60 people that would have had a really hard time, even if the districts had allowed me to keep my students on on task you know to do their assignments to get into some of those platforms and what about the students that that don't have all that equipment at home and would the schools have allowed them to to take it home or have have gotten it to them somehow so that they would even be able to learn i think those are all good questions um so i i suppose one of the things that we need to to do um Patty, and, and maybe you'd be a good person to ask about this, 
is is to build into uh, to our our IEP planning um, the answer to questions like that. Will you allow kids to take equipment home? Um, are you uh, are you going to assure that the platform that you're that you're going to use works? You know, and 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 I guess part of where I'm coming down, and and, and I'll ask for your comment, Patty, is maybe we can we can forgive people for the first month or month and a half. Um, but, but if this comes back in the fall, as some people think it might, um, I would hope that, that we've got a much better system um, that's much more inclusive than the current one is. Would, would you agree, Pat? Oh, strongly agree. Extremely strongly agree. And, and even if you have schools for the blind within your state, are, are they cooperating with the you know, home schools that they could maybe pitch in and you know, be a backup source? As, as well as Hadley. I think Hadley's a good source too, but you know, in so many states don't have schools for the blind anymore, which is not a, which is not a place you can fall back on to in, in emergencies like this. Yep. All right. Thank you very much, Miss Patty. Stay well. Who do we have, Mr. Well, we have Lori again. Miss Scharf. So, um, I just want to say, as somebody on the Special Education Task Force for ACB, um, this is an issue we have been discussing. Um, and if there are parents or people know of parents out there, they certainly could get in touch with myself or the chair of the Special Education Task Force, Debbie Grubb. Additionally, I think in this particular case, so many schools closed so quickly that there really weren't, there wasn't time for planning. Um, regarding the IEP, very often there is a section on the IEP that says materials and adaptive devices can be brought home. Often that box does not get checked or even put on an IEP. It is critical always for that to be checked. So if yeah. a blind child has to bring a braille writer home because the one at home broke, or, you know, for the ability to bring the Braille note touch or the Braille sense back and forth to school, that's what ensures it legally. Um, right. You know. And it varies a lot from school district to school district and from yes, state and, to state. And, and state to state, yes. But that also is something that should be advocated for. Additionally, um, you know, I know that here in Virginia, the School for the Blind has done a lot. Um, there has been articles uh, written about it in various places. Uh, there was some media coverage so that they are able to still interact with the children. Um, in other states and parts where contract employees are, are subcontracted through a third party, um, you know, I know that Virginia has some of that. I know Florida has right. some of that. New York, they have the board of BOCES Board of Special Education Services. Those are the students that are really missing out because those teachers are really often not very accountable to anyone. Right. Um, but the, the the let's make the assumption as 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 we did at the top that f till the end of this school year, we're probably not going to get anything really significant done. But, but how do we prevent this from happening in the future? 
We, we make sure that there are plans in place. And I think this should be a wake up call to all school districts that now they have to have not only a primary camp plan for education, but a secondary backup plan. Um, you know, it's, it's similar to the days of, oh, we have a snowstorm. We didn't know it was even coming. And what do we do with these kids? You know, now they let them out early or they bring them in late or, you know, it's much different than it was 20 years ago. That's so, the type of stuff that schools have to really start to look at. So one of the things that, that, that I think uh, needs to happen is we've paid lip service to the fact that states are, are developing platforms that allow remote learning. And, and those are actually being integrated into the regular curriculum. I know this is true in Florida. Um, at the junior and senior high level. And there is actually a requirement that every kid who graduates from high school has taken at least one remote, remote learning class. The point that I'm making, though, is there's still not sufficient pressure on state uh, departments of education uh, or on local school districts to make sure that those remote learning platforms are in fact accessible. And I think that, and I think that we as the American Council of the Blind and, and, uh, and other organizations need to become uh, much stronger advocates for making sure that these remote platforms are accessible or else the school systems can't use them. I, I totally agree. I also know that, um I, I know a lot about what's going on in the New York City schools because I'm attending Hunter and two of my professors are TVIs within the New York City Board of Education. And the problem they originally had in New York State was there were directives coming down from the State Department of Education saying, oh, well, your services that are listed and on, on an IEP can now transfer over to the child's health insurance and the services can be provided at home by the healthcare provider. Well, yeah, that's not. true for OT and PT, but and speech, but not for vision services. And you know, this is another case similar to the rehabilitation system. Whereas blind people, since our services are not reimbursable through a third party, it kind of changes things. Thanks, Lori. And Brian's raising his hand. Mr. Brian, go. I'm raising my hand. <laughs> Back door. <laughs> So uh, for, for me, the couple of things that we need to do here is to learn from our experience. Uh, when the Perkins School was forced to close, uh, the TVIs that work there and the TVIs that work for Perkins out in the field all were kind of caught flat-footed in terms of having the resources to support their students uh, learning from home. But they rapidly came up with ways to assist in that regard. One of them was, uh, and it's happening in my home, and that is that any TVI in Massachusetts can send a file to the Braille and Talking Book Library and their Braille production unit will generate it as Braille and mail it to the student and email the teacher that the student uh, should be receiving it in the in, in the mails. And four or five 
documents a day are coming out of my home doing that. Now, it took not thinking about what you can't do, but thinking about what you can do in that scenario. Uh, we've been talking about Braille as if that's the be all and end all, and I do love my Braille, don't get me wrong. But there's another thing within every state, and that's some variation of a vision resource library, a entity that is responsible for possessing and distributing and repurposing educational materials for students who are blind or visually impaired. Right. And it so happens that my former employer, the Carroll Center for the Blind, had that contract, has that contract with uh, the state of Massachusetts. But all those materials are sitting there in a warehouse because there's no way to provide the service without, um, and keeping that, that distance between things. We're considered a non-essential service. And that, that's just simply not appropriate. There should be exceptions to that. National so, Braille Press was considered right. to be a non-essential service. And so we, they advocated and it became an essential service. But the employees are working there you know, literally hand to hand. And as a result, the employees were asked, are you in a position where you feel that you could come to work? And so many of them said they could not, that uh, they had not reopened. Excellent. So, so we need to perhaps get involved with state government uh, and be sure that services for people who are blind, especially if, the, if there is a service delivery model that works, uh, need to be construed as essential services. And that's another of the things we can do. Thank you, Brian. Absolutely. One more question on this one, and then we'll go to our third and final question, Mr. Rick. Okay, phone number 2048. Hello, my name is... Yes. My name is Regina, and I'm from Sacramento as well. I was just thinking I've been involved with education through the Head Start program first, and then later on helping with IEPs of different children with special needs and being a parent advocate. I come at it from the other perspective of a parent. And um, I just think that some of what's happening is the people coming up with the solutions are closer to my age than the young people's age we're trying to help. And the college students that I know and the high school students that I know that are blind can do circles around me technologically. And often, I think they can come up with solutions that are more innovative. And I think trying to consult some of those people with that technological background, because they use technology every day, these are people who were raised on it. And um, I know a young man that actually figured out how to play that Xbox station thing, the yep, yep, game yep. sit before they adapted it with voice and everything. He knew how to operate and he was totally blind. That's and that cool. kind of <laughs> that kind of ingenuity needs to be utilized when we make these plans, I believe. That's all. So 
So we need to get more young people involved in helping us plan for, for our kids who are in school. Thank you, dear. Yeah. Yep. All right. So we're going to go to the final question. And, and this is something that in a way we thought we'd fix. Um, because we certainly did get the Federal Communications Commission uh, to agree that when there is emergency communication, there is a requirement on the part of local television stations uh, to be sure that those emergency information announcements uh, that are being scrolled across the bottom of the screen are made available on the secondary audio program channel. Now, it's not ideal because they use a text-to-speech voice, I'll learn to speak, and uh, some people find that text-to-speech voice a little difficult to understand. So it's not ideal, but it's there. Now, in the current emergency, all kinds of information is scrolling across the bottom of the screen, all kinds of numbers, all kinds of statistics, all kinds of data, but it is not specifically designated as an alert, and therefore it isn't treated as an emergency message, and therefore uh, there is no communication of that information to people who are blind or have low vision who may be watching television and trying to get information about what's going on. So the question is, uh, first, have you experienced it? And I'm sure you have, because I have quite a lot. But second, um, what should we do about it? And Paul, we have Doreen. Doreen, you're up. Okay, so the, the question is about um, alerts to scroll across the screen. Yes. Um, is that, I, I think the, the part of the question is, how does it come to you? Does it come to you through your cable company or like, direct broadcast because um, it seems totally obvious that um, it's appropriate to get in the face of whoever's providing the information. Um, I know in, well, in Seattle, we've been able to get in the face of all the people who say drive through whatever and say, nope, you have some customers who can't drive and it's a little hit or miss in different neighborhoods, but the, who do you talk to? Um, and unfortunately, it's true that probably it would have been good to think about this ahead of time because they might not be able to do that. But um, um, I, I think it's totally worth asking your cable company. The other issue, though, is... Um, well, it's, it's supposed to apply uh, to, to, to all forms of uh, all local TV stations, whether they're being carried uh, on cable or on satellite or uh, uh, as, as direct. Right. And so, so I think it's totally worthwhile to talk to your individual stations. Unfortunately, it might also be worthwhile to figure you're going to need other sources of information. Yeah, well, for, um, and for the, like most, part, and for the most part, media. talking to those stations doesn't do any good. Um, um, or, or at least that's in my experience. Because they say they don't have to or they don't have time or... Uh, they um, say both. That's correct. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Thank you, Ms. Doreen. Um, we yep. appreciate it. All right. Who's next, Mr. Rick? Okay, we've got <clears throat> Sharon. Sharon. Sharon Payne. In the Maryland area. 
Hello, Paul Edwards, a voice from Hello, the Hello, Sharon Payne. How are you? I'm well, thank you. So um, I, I just wanted to backtrack. My, my hand was actually up on the last question, not this one. Uh, <laughs> So I'm not quite up to the TV stuff yet. But first of all, I'd like to, to do a shout out to all the teachers because I am on the Facebook um, the Facebook page for the uh, teachers, the TVIs and O&M instructors in the schools. And they are doing an amazing job of sharing information, making things accessible, jerry-rigging things if they have to, finding out who's at the company that can do it for them, and, um, and finding ways around the system and making it work for their students. So Now, are you describing what's going on in Maryland now or, no, or I'm, broader I'm than that? nationally. Sure. It's not just Maryland. So the Facebook mm -hmm. page covers the entire United States. Teachers interested in to to be on there um, are are doing what they can and reaching out and helping and what they are the younger people are doing bless them is they are screen sharing with the older teachers and showing them right on their own computers um, how to get in touch with their students and how to uh, work some of the programs that they need. Um, some of it, as you say, is terribly inaccessible, but I think we should have a shout out to the teachers that are working so hard to do this. They are getting the kids their equipment, if at all possible. Um, they're sending, you know, I have, a, I have an old brailer from here, I'll send it to you there. And as long as the post office is still working, um, they're doing it. The teachers are picking up stuff at school, they're dropping it to students, they're brailing stuff at home. Um, and so they, Sharon, how could people find this page if they wanted to look at it? If the, how can they find the Facebook page? Um, go to the Facebook and look for a group called Teachers of the Blind and Visually Impaired slash O and M Specialists. Thank you. And uh, we appreciate your feedback, Sharon. And it's good to know. Yeah, um, that, 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 that kind love, of sharing is happening. Yeah, I'd love to put um, I'd love to put the information. Um, Lori said just get in touch with me, but she didn't say how to do that. So I would love to post that on the Facebook page for the teachers to know if they have questions or concerns, challenges, of which a lot of them do. Um, so if do if you look at the Lori if Sharp? you look at the American Council of the Blind website, um, Sharon. You can then look at the, uh, the the special education task force, and you'll find Lori's information there. Okay, I'm going to po post that um, onto onto that page then for very good um, for, and, the, and, for the student. And thanks for being here, Miss Sharon. It's good to hear from you. Uh, thank you for doing this. I think it's it's tremendous. Excellent. So back to the TV, I guess. Yes. All right, Ms. Sharon, thanks. Um, who do we have, Rick? Uh, we've got Christine. Okay. Um, my thought on the TV issue is, unfortunately, even if they, if they aren't going to put it on television, their webpage has a bunch of stuff, and you might could find it there. But their webpage is also set up very graphically for most television stations. Yes. Um, but, but that is a workaround of some sort um, because, you know, if we could, if we could demand that they either, you know, take your pick, take your poison boys and girls, um, either give us this stuff on, on SAP or make your website a little bit more accessible so that we can pick up the stuff. Cause at least 
when you're picking it up off the website, you have control over it. When they're crawling it across the bottom of the screen, you don't know where you've come in. Yes, and that's I, my I, thought. I, I I think that's fair, um, but but if we take the position that that sixty percent or so of blind people are over the age of sixty, and many of them are probably not going to be very computer literate. Does that change your response? Well, I'm 72. I can't tell you, boys and girls. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm with you. I'm older than that, too. Yeah. I mean, it's, um, it, it, we. you can't, because it isn't emergency information. It's, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's important information, but it's kind of like, it's kind of like fish fries during Lent. Well, I, I'm not sure I agree with that. I mean, it's not quite um, that. Know, I, it's I, not quite that low caliber. But what I mean is, it's it's much more informational. It's much more like doing reading the newspaper. Okay, I, I'm I'm not sure I agree with that because okay. I think there's a lot of information that's being put up there that says what number to call if you if 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 you need food, and what number to call, uh, what what number to call if you if you want to get tested. And all kinds of stuff like that. And and when they're not repeating those numbers out loud, uh, I think that folks who are blind and visually impaired are pretty substantially disadvantaged. Um, Mr. Rick, let's see if we can take one or two quick ones. Okay, we've got 7768. 7768. Hi, this is Shirley. Hi. How are you tonight? Hi, Shirley. Miss Roberts, go ahead. Yes, sir. I'd like to hit the TV uh, thing from a different angle. We've yes. got one station where we are here in particular, and we're down in Florida right now, um, that is continuously, you know, um, scrolling things across the screen about all the numbers in the different counties um, that have the virus and so on and so forth yep. and how many people there are in each county the problem is is that they're doing all that with audio so if you have a show with audio description you're missing you know a lot of the description on a program because they're repeating and repeating and repeating all the numbers and things you know that are being scrolled about the virus so, you know, there you've got an entirely different situation. Yeah, I, I, I think it's, it's, an interesting, it's an interesting issue, Shirley, but I, I, I think I'm impressed that you're actually getting scrolled information because, as I say, I've run across one piece in the last four weeks down here in Miami. Um, so I'm impressed that you're getting as much as you are. You're getting as much to be annoyed by it. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. I, you know, and I understand what you're saying and, and it's, it definitely, um, you know, creates quite a dilemma because the other stations are showing the stuff because my husband's seeing it on the screen, but they're not, you know, continuously giving you the audio for it. And I, right. I guess I'd kind of like to see, and it would be hard to get a good compromise, you know, if they're, if they're going it to is. do it. Um, you know, I think it's important that we have that information, but I don't know that we continuously need to hear it where it gets to the point that it overrides, you know, the description as well. So I'm not sure what the answer is to that, but I thought it would be a, a, a point, you know, worth bringing up. Worth it making. Thank you, Miss Shirley. an interesting dilemma. Thank you, Miss Shirley. Thank you, sir. Have a good evening. 
Can we do one more, Mr. Rick? Paul, that is everyone with their hands raised, so we're all set. So let me let me just say to everyone that I think the discussion this evening has been interesting and exciting. I'd like to thank everyone for being here this evening. I think that next week we're going to do a show about voting uh, and the consequences of that, uh, both for the fan- pandemic, for people who are blind, uh, and the future of accessible mail ballots. Uh, I, I look forward to talking to everyone about that. And I thank all of you for being with us this evening on what I think has been an interesting and enjoyable version of Tuesday Topics. Thank you so much. See you next week and good night. <laughs>